For Arizona Public Media, I'm Vanessa Barchfield, sitting in for Mark McLemore. And this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we'll introduce you to a Buddhist meditation group as its members prepare to march in Sunday's All Souls procession. How does a warrior heal? We'll meet two combat veterans and close friends who set out on a cross-country journey to find out. An inside look at the recent 10 West Fest, which aimed to boost Tucson's burgeoning community of entrepreneurs. And a debrief on this week's local election results with AZPM political reporter Andrea Kelly. Those stories up next, here on Arizona Spotlight. Thousands of Tucsonans will gather on Sunday to remember their deceased loved ones. Though it's rooted in Mexican traditions, the All Souls procession has evolved into a commemoration of the dead in many cultures. There will be bagpipe players, mariachis, Japanese drummers, and a Buddhist meditation group that will be chanting in Korean. My name is Frank Jude Bocio, and... Uh, my Korean Dharma name and title is Bapsa, which means Dharma teacher. My name is Tom Beal, and I teach yoga in Tucson. My name is Nancy Hand. I'm a member of Empty Mountain Sangha here in Tucson. Emptiness is a, is a Buddhist concept. And so uh, because Tucson has mountains, we call it Empty Mountain. Sangha is a Sanskrit word that means community. The Sangha really is a space to relate in a more humane and human way to ourselves, among ourselves, among our community, and also in the greater world. Sangha is a community of like-minded people, but not that we have to even think alike. There's a lot of diversity in beliefs. I mean, you don't even have to have a certain belief to practice here. The only thing we share is the value of wanting to be more awake in our lives, uh, more intimate with our experience of, of life. Um, from my perspective, this is not a dress rehearsal. I think a lot of people have the idea that meditation is not thinking, that, that the objective is to kind of stop your mind from thinking. And fortunately, that's not the case because we really can't do that. You know, you should try it sometime. Sit down and watch your breath and notice how quickly your mind wanders. Could be anything, anything from traffic, somebody who was misbehaving in traffic, to uh, what I might make for dinner, to, to um, oh, it's a nice day outside, I should be out hiking, or, you know, all of a sudden there could be some painful memory uh, from the past. Anticipating your vacation, and, oh, you're such a klutz. I mean, the mind will grab anything it, it can latch onto to distract you. Many of the times, we're so lost in our thoughts that we're missing what's really happening, and really the practice is noticing that wandering and coming back. So the four simple steps is to bring your attention to your breath. When you become aware that the mind has wandered, bring it back to the breath and repeat that several billion times. Again and That's again it. and again and again and again. Buddhist practice is about life and, how, and really it's not about getting into some weird state or um, transcending. Um, I like to tell my students that there are more stories of people becoming awakened, you know, deeply uh, awake to reality and things as they are while gardening or cooking or eating than while actually sitting in meditation. 
So one of my teachers once said that awakening is an accident. You can't willfully do it. So all of our practices are designed to make us accident prone. One of the um, uh, aspects of Buddhism is the notion of impermanence. People live as if they've got all the time in the world or that death happens to other people but not me. Um, so there's a kind of act of denial. And the truth is we're all, we say we're all living, dying. So each moment, we're a moment closer to our death from the moment we're born, whether that's one day or one week or a month or 50 years. Some people find that very depressing. It's not meant to be macabre. It's meant to motivate us to really... Appreciate what we have while we have it. I think that um, Mexican culture and Latino culture in general is um, much more recognizes the reality of death much more than we do in the United States generally. And I think that uh, the Day of the Dead, on which All Souls is partly based, um, is a beautiful tradition of paying tribute to our loved ones who have passed. Every tradition has some kind of uh, celebratory or uh, ritual honoring of the dead. In Zen, in Japanese Zen, it's called Oban, which actually happens generally at the end of August. But we live here in Tucson. We're not in Japan. We have this already amazing uh, celebration of honoring grieving, but also celebrating death and life. So we figured, you know, we want to honor the celebration and the tradition of All Souls procession and bring something to the community. So, um, see there's those signs there in the corner. And the signs are the five remembrances. All beings are the nature of the age. There's no way to avoid aging. Kind of reminders that uh, we use to stay focused and bring our attention back to, you know, what's important. All beings are of the nature to experience illness. There's no way to avoid experiencing illness. I will be marching to carry this idea of impermanence. All beings are of the nature to die. There's no way to avoid death. I lost a friend of mine whose name was Steve Reynolds. All that and we love. Steve was a good friend of mine. He was Everything we hold dear is of the nature to change. There's no way to, be, to avoid becoming separated from them. My niece, Ashley, she was killed when she was 18 years old. Our actions are the ground ago, upon actually, which we stand. There's no way to avoid the consequences of our actions. Yeah. I have a dear friend who died named Susan Clark, who was an My, my parents have died in the last couple of years. There have been times where there's been a, a loss. I've been memorial. Yeah, I'll be thinking of Steve that night. All of us and my family hold her in our hearts. We'll be chanting uh, a, a mantra chant that honors Kwan um, And her name literally means the hero of the world's cries. And so she's the, the, the archetype of compassion. And in Buddhism, compassion is not simply a feeling. The, the actual Sanskrit word for uh, that we're translating as compassion is karuna, which is related to the word karma, which means action. So karuna is an intentional action to try and uh, ameliorate suffering. And so we'll be chanting that as a way of evoking and invoking the, uh, the human natural uh, quality and capacity for compassionate action. Of all the millions and millions of years that this planet has existed, and 
other planets and other stars besides the sun and the millions and millions of years that they will exist after our death. We have the great good fortune to be here alive right now, you and me right now in this moment. And that's incredible. It's, and it's an incredible opportunity to really savor each moment. Life is, is this. You know, it's glorious, it's wonderful, there are wonderful experiences, there's love, there's sex, there's great food, and we're all gonna die, you know? And if that doesn't move you, you know, to want to like really engage with life in a fuller, more authentic way, um, what, what would? That doesn't mean that we can be happy every moment. That's not possible. But even the not-so-happy moments, all of it, all of human experience, we have the capacity to really savor and value and be present for. That story was produced by me, Vanessa Barchfield. How does a warrior heal? Two combat veterans and close friends set out on a cross-country journey to find out, and what they discovered transformed their lives. Gisela Tellis spoke with Doc King and Daniel Egbert about the journey, and Project 22, the film that grew from their experiences. Uh, my name is Doc King, and they call me that because I was a medic. My, my name is Matthew. I'm Daniel Egbert. I was a Marine infantryman for seven years with the United States Marine Corps. Both Doc King and Daniel Egbert served in the post-9-11 conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it wasn't war that brought them together. It was a movie. Doc recalls. Well, I, I was struggling with post-traumatic stress and I had just uh, left my job and my school and um, actually a, a, a marriage as well. I got divorced. And um, I was moving out to New York to be close to my sister who was living out there. And uh, I met Dan. We actually were together on a, a film set out there um, doing some um, military extra work. Uh, but he was looking for an apartment. Me just having moved out there, I was uh, looking for a place as well. Um, and he was one of the only military guys that I met out there. So there was that instant connection between us. And I'm, I'm born and raised in New York um, from uh, Long Island, and I just got back from my third deployment at the time from um, Iraq. And I, like Doc said, I, I ended up on the set of this Hollywood film, and we met, and I asked him if he wanted to get an apartment because I, wa I was working in New York City at the time, uh, commuting from Long Island, and I just wanted to be closer. So we met and moved in and became best friends. Doc and Daniel shared their struggle to readjust in the civilian world. After Doc moved to Los Angeles, that struggle nearly claimed Daniel's life. I isolated completely. I self-sabotaged everything in my life, relationships, um, jobs, family. I, I was my own worst enemy. I was a massive alcoholic. I was taking pills. And then ultimately, which is the reason why Project 22 started, is I attempted suicide twice. Daniel called me one night. He reached out for help, and I was able to be there for him as a friend. 
And um, we, we knew that there were resources out there, and we knew that there were veterans who had gone through this. Um, but we, we also felt that there needed to be some kind of forum where we could share, where we could pool resources to talk about the struggles that we were feeling and some of the things that helped us get through. Um, and it came about in the form of Project 22. When I got back to Los Angeles, we started planning, and then uh, he actually drove across the country, moved out to Los Angeles, and uh, the day he got to Los Angeles, we were on the road to go to Project 22. Project 22 refers to the often cited statistic drawn from a Department of Veterans Affairs study that 22 veterans die by suicide every day. For Daniel and Doc, Project 22 would be a motorcycle journey from San Francisco to New York City to explore the reasons behind the epidemic of veteran suicide. They hoped to turn their search for healing into a documentary, so they assembled a bare-bones production crew and crowdsourced funding for the project. Over 6,500 miles and 22 days, they filmed interviews with researchers, mental health care providers, and veterans, they tried equine therapy, meditation, sailing, and other alternative approaches to easing the pain of post-traumatic stress. What they found changed their lives, Daniel says. It became my purpose. It became um, something bigger than me, once again, something bigger than my struggles, something bigger than uh, my pain. And, and they always say helping is healing, but I never really understood it until Project 22. Um, the things that we found on the road are things that I've never heard before that opened up my mind and my heart again and, and made me have hope again. Uh, and, and it's just without hope, I mean, you can't last too long. The film, titled Project 22 and gleaned from 33 interviews and hundreds of hours of footage, is now screening in theaters and schools across the country. And it has put its creators on a path they never expected, Doc says. Daniel started film school after Project 22 um, and just recently graduated with top honors there. And Project 22 also put me back into school. And so I've been, uh, I'll finish up my bachelor's degree next month um, in psychology, and I'm currently applying for the Master of Social Work program at USC. Um, so it, it altered the course of my life. And between that and my 14-month-old daughter, that keeps me busy and happy. <laughs> Having found hope themselves, Doc King and Daniel Egbert now plan to help other veterans find it too. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight. A free screening of Project 22 will take place Sunday at 6 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. Several groups in Tucson have been working to build the city's startup culture into a major economic driver. Their efforts range from small classes to week-long events with concerts, contests, and seminars. What does getting a bunch of entrepreneurs together in a big room really do? Zach Ziegler headed to one such event to find out. Right now, please welcome Fanfare. Hundreds of people are gathered in an auditorium at the Tucson Marriott University Park, west of the University of Arizona. 
They're here to see early stage entrepreneurs compete to sell investors on putting money into their ventures. It's like the TV show Shark Tank. The entrepreneurs stand in front of a panel of judges, mostly venture capitalists, and pitch their businesses. This is a pitch from Fanfare, a Tucson startup that aspires to act as the online marketing hub for Comic-Cons. Those are events that started years ago as gatherings for comic book fans and have grown to include large swaths of pop culture. In fact, there are now annual comic conventions in most major cities in the U.S. and around the world. And these events draw upwards of 120,000 attendees in a weekend. Most Following Fanfare is in-house, a company also looking to be a digital marketer for realtors. Our goal is to save our customers time, money, and to make them look consistent throughout all their marketing. 16 companies are competing today. One winner will get $10,000, and all the companies will get invaluable experience. They get to sit in front of the type of people they need to impress and hear what questions they have. They get to learn their weaknesses before they're in front of potential investors. Plus, there's a room full of people, some of whom may want to put a little money into a startup. This is Idea Funding, an event that's part of 10 West, a week-long festival that aims to help Tucson's entrepreneurs. One of the challenges in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is how do we get young people who graduate from the university, get them to stay? Greg Teasdale is the executive director of 10 West. How do we attract people from other communities, other areas around the country to come to Tucson? You've seen these things, these things happen in places like Austin, Denver, Portland. There's no reason why we can't do it. We've got all the same components that they have they're just a little bit ahead of us. Teasdale is affiliated with Startup Tucson, a group that works to build new businesses. Justin Williams heads Startup Tucson. He says the group took over idea funding two years ago from an organizer who ran it for nearly 20 years. And it seemed like building around the basis that idea funding has formed was a really strong anchor to, to a festival like this. Idea funding's pitch contest is one of the entertainment portions of 10 West. It's paired with concerts, happy hours, and other social events. It's all part of the learning environment brought forth in seminars and demonstrations. William says that's important because creativity is a part of the startup sector. There's a very natural intersection uh, in the space that we play in between the creative community uh, and the sort of tech and entrepreneurial community. Idea Funding Director Greg Teasdale says there's another reason to build an event this way. We would really like this to be a technology and entrepreneurial thing with an entertainment wrapper, a significant entertainment wrapper, because people we want people to live, work, and play. It's the entire combination. That idea, live, work, play. It can be a big deal in building entrepreneurial ecosystems. The hope is to entice young entrepreneurs to stay in Tucson by showing them they can enjoy all aspects of their life here. But enticing people to come or to stay in Tucson is not enough. There's also the matter of filling in knowledge gaps those entrepreneurs may have. A trade secret is something that is commercially valuable that retains its value from not being generally known. So the most famous example of a trade secret is the formula for Coke. Not every part of 10 West is entertainment. There's also classes such as this one titled Legal 101 for Startups. Raj Gangadeen is a partner with the law firm Perkins Cole, and he's teaching entrepreneurs how to avoid mistakes that could sink their companies. He thinks Arizona needs to build the entrepreneurial ecosystem, and volunteering his time is how he does his part. 
the state is going to end up having its economy needing to be about more than real estate and tourism. And I want to be a part of making that happen. 10 West Teasdale says seminars such as these are the lifeblood of the event. They're divided into a pair of paths to meet the needs of different entrepreneurs. The tech track had things like virtual reality, gaming, Internet of Things, 3D printing, rapid prototyping. And then uh, at the entrepreneurship, it was how to present your company, how to fund your company, the things you need to know. Those two tracks were not chosen randomly. When paired with entertainment, it appeals to what many experts say are the three archetypes needed to found a company. Startup Tucson's Justin Williams says this mixture has developed a name. The hacker, the hipster, and the hustler. To put it in terms of the booming software industry. The hacker is the person who knows how to write the code. The hipster is the person who knows how to make it work for people, is a creative type. It makes it look you know, elegant um, and simple. And then the hustler is the person who runs around and sells it. And once you have people who are interested in filling those roles all at the same event, taking in seminars, enjoying themselves and talking to each other, it can be the start of assembling a company. And bringing a festival together like this pulls them all into one location, uh, pulls them all together at the same time. And when you see that, you start to notice that there's lots and lots more of these people than we ever thought. And it might not even be a founder. It might be a client or an investor or someone else who helps you grow a business. That's the case for Andrew Slattery. He says he started venturing out of his office and taking part in such events not too long ago. And I've been busy as all hell because of the connections I made from just this space here and this event alone. I've met a ton of great people. It's awesome to just have all the information available and to just kind of be like a sponge, get all that information that you can't, you know, spend hours trying to find online. But here it's one channel, it's all coming into you. So whether it's building new companies with people who are already here or enticing talent to relocate, the importance, says Startup Tucson's Justin Williams, is to get companies up and going. If you really want something to, to spin out and start working on its own, you need this sort of uh, density and you need this sort of action. And that, does, that action doesn't generate itself unless it hits a critical tipping point. And through growth or education, the focus of 10 West and other events that bring Tucson's entrepreneurial ecosystem together is to turn Southern Arizona into a place like Austin, Denver, or Portland. A place where creative minds feel compelled to set up shop and build their dream. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. Tucsonans went to the polls this week, and we've been hard at work tracking the election results. Now AZPM political reporter Andrea Kelly joins us for a debrief about what they'll mean for Tucson. Andrea, you've covered many elections here. What stood out to you about this one? I think I'd basically categorize it as two, two different things, what did happen and what didn't happen in this election. So what did happen was Tucson voted in its incumbents for the Tucson City Council. And while that's not normally something to remark on, incumbents often win here, it was despite a, a really visible opposition campaign that was that was running throughout the election cycle. Um, this group called Revitalize Tucson is an independent expenditure committee that was 
really visibly opposing those incumbents. Um, it's run by a Republican named Frank Antonori and a Republican named Christine Bowserman. They've been active in other election cycles, but not with an independent expenditure campaign. And they chose to oppose the incumbents, so kind of indirectly supporting the Republican uh, opponents. And they had billboards, they had signs, they had radio ads, they did robocalls. And that was something we haven't seen very much in Tucson elections before. So that was interesting. And the incumbents won anyway. What didn't happen was that the bonds, the Pima County bond package, did not pass for the per first time. Voters approved bonds in 1997, 2004, uh, a much smaller package in 2006, and then a few years ago, the city road bonding. So generally, voters in Tucson and Pima County have been supportive of paying for projects through increased property taxes. This year, they said no altogether across the board. So are those bond projects just canceled, or is there another way to do them? What's, what's next for those projects? Well, I actually uh, interviewed a couple people about how this is going to be managed um, in the future. And the, for example, the Pima County Parks Department. Parks was the biggest, uh, had the highest number of projects. There were 99 projects on the bond list. 49 of them were parks. And it had almost the highest spending of all the projects. So that's a lot of things that won't get done now. The Parks Department is basically grappling with trying to figure out how to find other money in a budget that doesn't really have extra room. Maybe we'll do some of the smaller projects, uh, the director told me, but some of the big things just will not get done now. And if there's a if there's a way to find other funding sources, we're just less than a week out from the election and they haven't really started to figure out how or where to look for additional funding to do those. So basically, they're not getting done at this point. Do you have any idea why they failed? Um, there's a few places I can speculate on. You know, we don't know for sure. One of the things that, that people are talking about is the fact that there was such a low turnout in this election that that could have affected the the results. But it also could have been that people are tired of taxes going up. Bonds are loans that are paid back with property tax increases. And there's other property taxes that have been going up these last few years. So this would just be one on top of many. So taxes could be one. And then also mistrust in government. We also heard rumblings through this election cycle about, well, if I vote for this, will the county, the city, whoever's doing the projects, will they actually do what they said they would do? So those are kind of the things we can point to. We don't know for sure. And what's next uh, in terms of local politics? Well, the bottom line is it's actually a lot of the same. So in Oro Valley and Tucson, those council candidates were all reelected. So the, the councils will stay the same in those areas. Um, one thing that will change in Tucson is that red light cameras and photo radar vans will stop. Voters quite overwhelmingly said they do not like those. And um, so after the election results are certified on November 17th, those will come down. You can learn more about the election results on Metro Week, which airs on our sister station, PBS Channel 6, Friday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Vanessa Barchfield, filling in this week for Mark McLemore.